Hi folks, I'm Alan Watson. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 23rd of August 2010. As always, I suggest newcomers look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and you'll find hundreds of audio talks I've given over the years for download where I try to give you a bigger picture uh, than most will go to because we're living in an incredible age, the age of planned transition uh, that even some of the big philanthropists who like to call themselves the ones who guide the planet um, said uh, at the beginning this would be equivalent to the, the Industrial Revolution where millions of people were moved off the land and into the cities to work in their crowded factories. And it truly is a transition. as a transition in a way of thinking and doing and even being governed. So they call it governance today. So look into the website cuttingthroughmatrix.com and while you're there, remember too that I don't get paid by advertisers for my shows. I could be, uh, and then I'd bore you with bringing on lots of guests who would really be selling stuff. So it's up to you, the audience, to keep me going by buying the books and the discs I have for sale. I'd churn them out if I had more time, but I don't because my days are spent up fixing computers, even weekends too, and stuff like that. And you know what that's like? You want to you want to show them how to improve their particular model of computer with a sledgehammer. So buy the books and the discs and so on, and that hopefully will keep me just ticking over. And remember, these books are different from other books. I don't give you boring histories with the usual nonsense, and that's all it is, is nonsense. It's, it's authorized his story. Somebody wrote it because they were authorized to. And I show you really the techniques of control down through the ages up to the present time, all the cons. And it helps to deprogram you too when you read through them. And you can purchase them from the States to Canada by using a personal check to me. Uh, you'll see on the, on the website how to order and the prices. You can also use an international postal money order from your post office, remember? That's a good one too. And that's good too because if you ever lose it, if it doesn't get here, you can always reclaim it to your end. Uh, you can use PayPal for ordering or donating. If you want to order anything, just uh, send me the donation uh, followed by an email with your name, address, and the order on it, and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world with the addition of Western Union, which is kind of hefty for the fee they charge, MoneyGram, which is a bit cheaper, cash is still okay at the moment, of course, everything's changing very quickly, and PayPal to order or donate. Remember, if you want to purchase with PayPal, just send a separate email after your PayPal donation with your name, address, and the order, and I'll get it out to you. But yes, this is the age of transitions. This is the century of change that been, has been planned for an awful long time, even before the 20th century started. They talked about the 21st century being the century of change, where their big, big plans at the top uh, would come into fruition. And the public, as Bertrand Russell and others said, 
uh, would be as unlikely to rebel as it would be impossible for sheep to rebel about the price of mutton. And you don't realize that's already pretty well happened. Your whole culture has been given to you. It's been drastically altered, altered in the last 50, 60 years, and it's accelerating at a pre-planned uh, pace. They never jump ahead too quickly, but to be honest with you, they're much faster now with, in every direction that they've ever been before. I'm talking about the big guys who really run the world, the multi-billion or trillionaires, because people now are so into all the electronic media that they're conditioned and programmed all the time for the next step and the next step and the next step. It used to take them years to change society, and now it can be done so quickly. Back with more after these messages. I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. As I say, you know, you're, you're, the world you're living in is a script where incrementally things are pushed on all of society. And as you well know, you're already global. You've been global for a long time. In fact, you were global before they even created the United Nations as far as the big international corporations were concerned. And they make the policy. They put their boys into politics across the whole planet. And they belong to the right organizations to make sure that everybody who manages you uh, is the right person in the right country and so on. And that's what they call it, too, is the age of world managers. That's another term they use. And that's what we're under. Now, they've said before in academia in the 20th century that the century of change would have to be uh, post-democratic. They'd have to use authoritarian uh, systems run by experts to just tell the public what to do. And... They conditioned the public step by step, especially since 9-11 happened, but they were doing it before that too, but step by step afterwards into, but under the cover of security and terrorism, into a much quicker upgrade basically into the new system of giving up your rights and allowing more and more intrusion into your personal lives. I've read two articles on the air, which are in the archives and cutting through the matrix.com where you can search out the fact that, that the Pentagon has uh, uh, massive computer systems, of course, and they have literally virtual use. Everybody in the world has got, has got their copy in a virtual world, and they update it daily on all the information that you put out there on yourself. Now, what they do is run little games and so on to predict what you would do in any situation, and they say they're pretty well, almost 100% correct, they're so perfect. Of course, we must help them with this by using all the toys they put in front of us, the bait, you see. And it, it reminds me of the old cartoons where you'd see a bit of cheese and a bit of cheese and a bit of cheese, a whole line of cheese all the way to the mousetrap. And that's how they train the public. It's, we're just animals to them. And unfortunately, they're quite correct in the fact that we can be trained just like animals. In fact, animals are a bit more smarter than we are. We have lost our ability to really be uh, free and for self-preservation because we're domesticated. And we're trained to be that way uh, from birth, really. Mm-hmm. But here's an article here on the Boston Herald about the next step on airports. Now, I've already read the articles and how they came in with the X-raying and said, oh, it was only a surface scan, no harm there, you know. And I, I put utter lies. as so though we could stop the X-ray right in the surface. 
And sure enough, people didn't really balk at that too much. And yet the usual ones who pretend they're on your side, the big organizations that, that say, oh, we don't like this at all, like the ACLU, and then they, 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 go, they go quiet on it. And same thing now with the next step, because they're putting out um, the full X-ray scans that go, literally scan your skeleton. And I read that last week, too, on how every skeleton is different, supposedly, and they can really identify that way. You see, iris is not enough, eyeballs are not enough, and thumbprints are not enough. Um, your voice print isn't enough. They've got to have everything there to make sure that the stock, you see, you're the cattle, the stock, and they own you, and they want to know all about their cattle, like any good farmer would do. Here's the next step, and it says, uh, New Logan searches uh, blasted. The TSA tests, I think they meant to say frisky, uh, or risky frisking policy, but they said frisky frisking policy. It should be risky, I do believe. But it says here that... Um, Logan Airport security just got more up close and personal as federal screeners launched a more aggressive PAMS first slide-down body search technique that's renewed the debate over privacy versus safety. Well, that's okay because you'll all adapt into it like you adapt into everything else. And you've seen it on TV for about 40 years, you know, where they say the cop says to the guy, you know, you know the routine, and the guy turns around and puts his hands in the wall and gets frisked right down. So everyone will think it's just like the TV and what's wrong with that. No one cares anymore, really. Most folk don't really don't care. And that's what the few who are truly awake know. They know that. Because the general public are adapting all the time, even the ones who think they're fighting it. They've all got their cell phones. They've all got their, look, they're all texting everybody and they're using the Twitter and tweets and all the rest of it. And that's for the birds, obviously. Now, it says the new procedure already been questioned by the ACLU, again, the, the pretenders that only really go after certain political correct things. Um, this question that says because it replaces the Transportation Security Administration's former back of the hands pat down, well that was bad enough you know, Boston is uh, one of only two cities in which the new touchy-feely frisking is being implemented as a test this is the same way as Britain, everything gets tried out somewhere to get you used to that, and if there's any objections they find ways around it through their think tanks so it's a test here before a planned national rollout the other is Las Vegas. That's other testing place for the moment. It says we're all good, effective security measures. We're all for good security. See, everything's under security now, eh? Literally anything can go under security. Remember what Carl Quigley said, you can get more done on a social level of change than five years of war than 50 years of peace. And that's a fact. So American Civil Liberties Union um, of Massachusetts spokesman Christopher Ott said... But in general, we're concerned about the seemingly constant erosion of privacy, and we wonder whether or not it's really going to be effective. Well, that means nothing legally. That means nothing. That's, that, you don't, a, a bitching about something is not a legal thing, you see. So that, that means the ACLU is going to do nothing about it, because they're all part of the big thing, isn't it? Aren't they? Accepting these kinds of searches may keep people safer. Oh, wow, in some situations, but not in every situation. And we're encouraging people to stop and think about what is the right balance between privacy and security. Or it said, well, I know what it is. You chuck the whole homeland boys out the window and all their papers and all their laws and all the rest of it. And you get some freedoms back again and you stop the NSA and all the rest of them from listening to every telephone call you make. And you chuck away all your little toys that help them. Because believe you me, even if it says, yep, it's now a law that they can't check you, they're liars. They've been listening to you long before 9-11 without warrants. That's what their job is. 
Anyway, it says a TSA spokeswoman yesterday confirmed the switch to what the agency calls an enhanced pat-down. Oh, it's enhanced. They get marketers in for everything to give it a nice name. It's an enhanced pat-down. It sounds almost sexy, doesn't it? Enhanced. Hmm. So TSA is in the process of implementing an enhanced pat-down oh, at security checkpoints. That's one of her many layers of security, said Anne Davis, the TSA uh, spokeswoman, which, of course, is a PR, public relations, which is propaganda, according to Bernays, the guy who invented it, for the Northeast region. Pat-downs are designed to address potentially dangerous items like improvised explosive devices and their components concealed on the body. Well, they've had millions of cases like that, haven't they, you see? Well, there you go. And the cattle will go along, they'll move a bit, and the, but they'll get used to it rather quickly. It's like the cattle too, that you can hold them up when they're checking them up before they go and get their feed. But they know they're going to get their feed as soon as you let them go, so they'll let you do anything you want. And it's just the same with people. They all want to get in there and get that plane and so on. So uh, it doesn't matter what they do to them, they'll comply. That's human nature. As the big boys well know. And here's another article here from Germany. Well, I know that the ID cards with the embedded RFID were out in a few countries very quickly. Holland was one. Uh, Britain tried to get them out in 1908, I think it was. And everybody complained and says, well, what's the point? Nothing's happening in the world. The Cold War is, war is over, but there's a big push to get it done there. Same in Canada, by the way. There was an omnibus bill pushed through by Aaron Rock, who, after he got it through, went off to the United Nations, who was his real boss, by the way. And um, in Canada, at the same time, the reporters did report it in the media, but they said, we don't know why this is, which is technically a martial law bill, had been rammed through uh, with the, being detained without, you know, warrants and so on, and without arrest for endlessly, basically, before 9-11 even happened. And then Wendy Mesley came out with a, a program on her show, and she said, um, and it's all about the ID card as a kind of propaganda spiel for it, where one of her assistants, she followed her assistant through the whole screening process. They were using iris scans then for a clear pass before 9-11 happened too. And she talked to one of the guys who um, is in, in charge of the ID company that make the cards, and she says, what do you think, why do you think the public will accept this? He says they'll be given no option. So you're living through a script, folks. It's just that easy, that simple. And you're, you're fighting it all the wrong ways because you help them as you fight it by using all the toys that <laughs> they give you out there to track you and trace you and listen to you. But it's so convenient, isn't it? It's so convenient to have that, to be in constant contact with the NSA. Now, so she says, Jeremy rolled out the ID cards with embedded RFID, International Business Times. The production of the RFID chips, an integral element of the new generation of German identity cards, has started after the government gave a 10-year contract to the chip maker NXP in the Netherlands. Uh, citizens will, oh, I guess it's made in the Netherlands. Citizens will receive the mandatory new ID cards from the 1st of November. A new ID card will continue all personal data on the security chip that can be assessed or accessed over a wireless connection. Isn't that nice? The new card also allows German authorities to identify people with speed and accuracy, the government said. The government said they were much like Canada. British Commonwealth countries get just decrees from the government. That's how they speak to you. In the U.S., they try to humor you a bit. 
These authorities include the police customs and tax authorities and, of course, the local registration and passport granting authorities. Quite amazing, eh? Yep. German companies like um, Infineon and Dutch NXP, which operate a large-scale development and manufacturing base in Hamburg, Germany, said are our global leaders in manufacturing the RFID security chips. The new electronic ID card, which will gradually replace the old mandatory German ID cards, is one of the largest scale rollouts of RFID cards with extended official and identification functionality. It's, it's not going to be the biggest, but the biggest one is in India, and apparently they've just started it there. Uh, it says the card will also have extended functionality, including the ability to enable citizens to identify themselves in the internet, isn't that nice? You can identify yourself. You didn't know that anyway. So you're all going to get Alzheimer's apparently, and you'll be like so glad for this thing once you have it. So you can identify yourselves in the internet by using the ID card. So it's also going to be mandatory to get into the internet, you see, because everything's going, as you know, um, wireless. Everything is basically, uh, even the bank money is going to get phased out in the next three or four years, they said, by the top bankers. So it's all going to be transactions over over the, the net. So by using the ID card with a reading device at home. So you get a reading device at home. I guess you pay for that too. You pay for your chains in the system, if you notice. After registering uh, on an online account bonded to the ID card, uh, um, it says you're able to secure online shopping, downloading music, uh, and most importantly, interact with government authorities online, for example. Well, that's the same one they rolled out in Britain, because now you've got your own government webpage for you. Just like George Orwell, you know, yeah, you, Smith, you, yeah, yeah, you. You see a big angry woman there uh, telling you to bend, bend down and touch your toes and stuff. So that's coming, folks. Uh, biometric passports in a number of countries are equipped with RFID cards or chips, containing a digital picture and fingerprints and have been around for nearly five years. So that makes it okay. That's how they generally do these PR spiels after the United States required such passports for any person entering the country. There are some concerns that the use of RFID chips will pose a security or privacy risk. However, well, that won't happen because no one's really going to take them to court. Early versions of the... And what would matter if you took them to court anyway? Because they own the courts. <laughs> Early versions of the electronic passports using RFID chips with a protocol called Basic Access Control were, were, success, were successfully hacked by university researchers and security experts. The German ID card is using, it just, it's going to be like, I don't know if you saw the movie Brazil by, by Gwilliam, who did the Monty Python movies. And the Brazil is a sort of comedy of the future society where bureaucrats run everything and experts run everything. And uh, they live in a constant stage of terror, a state of terror. And the biggest building in the whole movie is the Department of Information Retrieval. It's a huge skyscraper building where everybody's day, every single thing about you is kept. And one day, of course, a fly drops into a typewriter and screws it up. And this person who should be picked up has one name change, one letter change in his name, and the security guards come in, they cut a hole in his ceiling, and they see the SWAT team coming in and grabbing him, and they take him off and kill him, and it's the wrong guy, uh, Tuttle. You're going to see all this stuff. You are going to see all this stuff, and that's acceptable to them at the top. They've already had discussions about this stuff at the top. That's why the cops can kill folk now with impunity, because, you see, they've been brought up with moral relativity. Humans are, are not an endangered species. And um, they're, they're only citizens anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're civilians. They're not the same as them. 
and they know they're going to get backing if they kill someone by those that investigate them, which are the police themselves. So that's going to happen. Um, they're going to have all this stuff rolled out very, very quickly across the world. And what they always do uh, is say, well, you see Holland's using it. I mean, so, so that means it's okay. Now, if they're beheading them, say, they're, they're people in China, was that what they'd say? Well, they're, they're doing it in China, so what's wrong with doing it here? That's what they always do. I've noticed that for my whole life. So anyway, uh, that's the PR part for the, the new chip and how you'll need it to uh, get access to the intranets. And that's what Obama, by the way, is pushing for in the States as well. Yeah, it's quite a predictable world. It, yeah, it's so boring, you know, because you always know what's coming next. And <laughs> I can remember Tony Blair. Folk have mentioned so many times that Tony Blair probably worked for MI5, and there's been some disclosures that he probably did. And what better way, of course, to run the parties is to put your man in at the top, just like the Royal Institute of International Affairs has been doing for a 100 years. Same with the CFR in the States. They've always done that. But, uh, you know, people to an extent get what they deserve because they never learn. And people voted for Labour. He was a working man, you see, That's a working man from Oxford, a working man. And they followed the, the, the creep uh, who became a multimillionaire. He took the country to war. He profited off the war, too, of course. A few of the people who objected uh, to what he was up to and were in the know, like Kelly, were killed you know, professionally. And... Um, and now he's, he's worth millions of pounds, this little creep. And um, he's now, this working man, of course, Labour, anybody, anybody who votes for parties is an idiot in my books. I don't care what party they vote for. If they haven't learned by now, how come you've gone down the drain for over a 100 years? Because hmm? they all work for the same boss. And they all signed the United Nations agreements. And they never tear up old treaties that the last bunch put in. But it says here, um, Mail Online, Tony Blair sets up Mayfair Bank to act as a deal-maker in investments for the super-rich, which are his bosses. So former PM's company can act as an investment bank. Blair's memoirs hail his visionary friend, George, his visionary friend, George Bush. The only visions he had was in very strong medication, you know, that's kind of illegal. A company set up by Tony Blair can now act as an investment bank after registering with the Financial Services Authority. His Mayfair-based company, uh, Fire Rush, could provide the former Prime Minister with further opportunities to boost his fortune, estimated to be in excess of £20 million. It's probably around £40 million. What do you do when they get as Prime Ministers, you see, and they belong to the Royal Institute of International Affairs, DICFR? is when you will push all the agenda that you're told to push through and you've been very successful uh, against all odds and all opposition from the guys down below you who are not quite in the know, um, they reward you well with directorships and stuff when you come out and they ghostwrite books that are worth millions of pounds in advance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's, your, that's your payoff. They do look after their own at the top. So he's a guy who wanted the wars, and no one else could understand why Britain had to go off to war, especially in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq and, and so on. But that didn't matter. He did what his bosses said. So Firas is understood to be one of a number of firms Mr. Blair has set up to manage the financial office consultancy firm Tony Blair Associates, TBA. But this development raises the possibility of Mr. Blair acting as a dealmaker in investments for the super rich. He already is. 
his company's been uh, making deals for all companies and so on across the conquered territories that he had a hand in, of course, without ever setting foot on the battlefield. Some of Mr. Blair's staff have also registered with the FSA and are able to offer services to clients. They include Catherine Rimmer, who worked in the research unit at Downing Street, and Joe Gibbons, a former aide. A spokesman denied that the company would act as an investment bank. Well, of course, that's a, that's their standard, isn't it? They won't really act as an investment Oh, no, no. He said FSA registration was appropriate given the potential there was for the TBA to do work that might fall under the scope of the FSA. The fire rush was registered with the FSA in January and was originally thought to have been set up by to manage Mr. Blair's own private portfolio. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there you go. That's what you get, you see, when you've been a good little boy and you've taken the countries to war and you've pushed everything you've been told to push from the top down, uh, your real bosses, that's not the people, and um, you're exceptionally well rewarded. I mean, Brian Mulroney, when he was a Prime Minister of Canada, he left, and I think he was on about, I don't know, 12 or 20 directorships and the boards, of them, and you wouldn't have to even attend them. The money just rolls in. And then he was made, I think, Vice President of Barrick Gold Corporation for helping push NAFTA and making getting his tax-free breaks for the gold boys down Latin America. But that's that's the payoffs they get, folks, and that's the real world that you live in. Yep. You see, up, up there, they don't see anything as being illegal for themselves. They're doing it for good causes, to fill their pockets and to make sure that the, the cattle you know, go along and be good little slaves and build their brave new world for them uh, before they kill us off. And that's what we've been doing for an awful long time. There's even an article here about how they're pushing it everywhere. Again, everyone's conditioned. They go along with it. No one's got the balls to say, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, so folk want to join prestigious gym, gymnasiums and workouts, you see, where, I guess, famous people go. That's generally the attraction. And this article here is about they want your fingerprints and biometric ID as well to get in, you know, as a member. Well, you know, let them. Let them. Yeah, there's none of these people I would want to talk to because they've got nothing to say that's not in the general media, very politically correct and all the rest of it. Uh, they're already conditioned fools. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix, just talking about the biometric ID to get into a, a gymnasium. But it's again prestigious, you see, to it's a high-class joint and all want to get in and say, hey, I'd go to so-and-so's gymnasium. And, and that's the appeal, of, co- of course, for the people who are really brain-dead, and it ends a lot of them out there. It's the kind that normally would go to an Oprah show and wait for all the free gifts to get thrown at them from the top, you know, and then scream in adoration at their idol who's also given them a lot of strange ways to behave and, and, and so on in life. However, it's been awfully effective. But this article goes on. It says, The gym wants my fingerprints, a biometric ID dilemma. And it's from the Daily Finance. This is, um, This week at my 24-hour fitness club in Silicon Valley, I noticed installation of fingerprint scanners at the front desk. 
A day or so later, the Afghan and patrons who signed in to allow the scanners to record biometric images of their right and left index fingers. It's all part of the Giant Jim's Chains a National Cardless Check-In Program designed to eliminate the need for members to carry gym cards and make it easier for them to validate their... Don't you understand that's how they get the, 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 the idiots to go along with it? It makes it easier for you and it makes it safer. And, and That's all they have to be told now. They're all conditioned. As soon as they hear that, okay, you know. When biometrics get down to the local gym, however, serious questions must be raised. Your biometric identifiers are immutable and, once stored in a computer, impossible to take back. And then they're sold all over the place, plus NSA gets them as well free. So if the 24-hour fitness database gets hacked and some enterprising black hat team of computer experts makes off with this sensitive information, many people could forever lose control of this permanent identification marker. Of course, you could scrape off your fingerprints and replace them with new ones, this is probably possible. Well, it is actually. But that's getting a little too close to total recall from my taste, it says. And then she was on about a whole new level of identity theft. It's going to be even worse there in Silicon Valley because, you know, they're all kind of New Agers down there and they're into Buddhism and all other kinds of isms and they've got past life experiences and it's going to be odd to try to match all these changing voices as they go back into their previous lives and different different names and all that with their, their thumbprints. That's going to cause... Maybe they'll get new age experts to go on the NSA to decipher them for them too. Hmm. See, it's creating jobs. So there you go, and that will that will get the folks going along. They're quite happy with the way things are, it seems. And to belong to prestigious anything, they'll bend over backwards and a lot more than that. I never know what I'm going to talk about until it's about 10 minutes to, and that's why I write the poems after the show, because I have no idea what I'm going to say. But this um, article here is about testing on the general public, been by the army, and the CIA, and so on. And it's uh, it's um, called Truth Out as a site. It says, Florida dengue fever outbreak leads to back to CIA and army experiments. It's all documented, 21st of July 2010. And it goes on about uh, how, this is in July the 13th, Florida officials released the findings of a Centers for Disease Control. They control disease, you see. And it's also the Center for Disease, you see. Uh, that, uh, but they control it. A study conducted recently at the Key West revealing uh, that about 10% or 1,000 people of the coastal town's population are infected with the dengue fever virus. Then it says, well, the July 13th uh, release made little mention of it. The CDC study was provoked by an earlier 2009 report that a woman in New York State who returned from a Florida Key visit had contacted or contracted the dengue fever. Within a few weeks of this initial report, two additional cases were discovered in people who had also returned from Key West. Over the next three months of 2009, an additional 26 cases were identified, all tied to visits to the town. Because these were these are reported cases at Florida Keys Mosquito Control District conducted greatly increased aerial spraying to control mosquitoes. I wonder why they do over here because it doesn't kill the bugs. Following this, the spraying, a small amount of other cases were reported, including that of a 41-year-old Key Westman who found blood in his urine and had severely aching joints. That's the symptoms you'd get initially. Following these additional reports, the CDC launched a study of antibodies in Key West residents and found that 5% of the town's residents had been exposed to the dengue virus. But then it goes into uh, what's happened in the past there. It says here that the the, the dengue fever is rare in Florida, but not unknown. 
is one of several mosquito-borne illnesses monitored by the department and why we continually remind the public to take precautions against bites. Oh, yeah, would you dress up in a suit of armour, eh? But anyway, it goes on here about um, some of the history of the dengue in that area. And it turns out, of course, the big the Maryland and all the rest of them, uh, Fort Detrick bunch, were testing it from as early on as uh, 1942. And it says, um, the biology of doom, that's the history of Fort Detrick, it's in a book, so, um, said that leading biologists at the installation placed dengue fever in a long list for serious consideration as a possible weapon. In the early 1950s, Fort Detrick, in partnership with the CIA, launched a multi-million dollar research program under which dengue fever and several additional exotic diseases were studied for use in offensive biological warfare attacks. Assumably because the virus is generally not lethal, programmers, uh, planners viewed it primarily as an incapacitant. They've, they've put out a lot of incapacitants, by the way. To, to not key out physically and all the rest of it. That was also part of the depopulation program because, you see, you become an ineligible partner for marriage, meaning you have no children, if you're completely kaputsky with uh, chronic fatigue and all the rest of it for life. Assumably because the virus is generally not lethal, programmers, planners, a lot of food experiments and anticompastant, reads one CIA project artichoke document. Not all viruses have to be lethal. The objective includes those that act as short-term and long-term incapacitants. Several CIA documents, as well as the findings of a 75 congressional committee, reveal that three sites in Florida, Key West, Panama City, and Eden Park, as well as two other locations in central Florida, were used for experiments with mosquito-borne dengue fever and other biological substances. So you can sleep better tonight. Your government's keeping you safe and secure and all that kind of stuff. That's the real world. That's real. And I, again, in my archive section at Cutting Through the Matrix, you'll find articles where they were testing stuff out in Britain. Uh, they were testing, testing stuff out in Canada. I read the book. It's called uh, Canada's uh, Secret Allies. Secret Allies, Canada's um, Secret War. And it's put up by a Toronto Star reporter. Very good book on declassified information on what they let loose on Canada and Canadians uh, from during World War II, right through on for quite a few years. And that's one of the stuff they have to declassified. The Cecil experiments in Avon Park, about 170 miles from Miami, were covertly conducted in a low-income African-American neighborhood that contained severely newly constructed or several newly constructed public housing projects. It's amazing, isn't it? They pick, they pick the ones and then build the houses for them and then test them. CIA documents related to its top-secret project, MK Naomi, clearly indicate that the mosquitoes used in Avon Park were the Aedes aegypti type, specially equipped aircraft, and one of the large experiments released 600,000 mosquitoes over the area. In one of the Avon Park experiments, about 150,000 mosquitoes were dropped in paper bags designed to open upon an impact with the ground. Each bag held about 1,000 insects. Besides dengue, some of the mosquitoes were also carrying yellow fever. And you're worried about guys in caves in Afghanistan, eh? Hmm. You haven't a clue. <laughs> you haven't a clue. So, even part residents still living in the area say the experiments resulted in, in at least six or seven deaths. It'd be a lot more than that. One elderly resident told truth out. Nobody knew about what had gone on here for years, maybe for over 20 years. But looking back, it explains why a bunch of healthy people got sick 
quickly and died at the time of those experiments. Interestingly, at the same time experiments were conducted in Florida, there were at least two cases of dengue fever reported among civilian researchers at Fort Detrick in Maryland. Oh, they were careless. They were careless characters, weren't they? That's the real world, as I say, but most folk don't want to look at that. They still go and vote for governments, and they think there's theirs, and they have no idea what's been done to them, even with their inoculations. Hmm? No idea. You cannot help those who cannot think for themselves, you understand. And whereas Albert Pike definitely was the, the Pope of Freemasonry that had a, a great plan for eugenics and all the rest of it for the world, he did say a truth. They do say truths. And he said, uh, he said those who cannot think or reason for themselves, use their own brain, in other words, um, are basically beasts of burden and meat on the table by choice and consent. You see, no one can truly say today they don't know what's going on. What they will say is, I don't want to hear that. Oh, you're a downer. You know, they want to talk about the happy stuff and what's happening in Hollywood and uh, who's having affairs and stuff like that. Exciting stuff. Hmm? That's what they want. So they're choosing. They are choosing. So there you go. That's your, that's another article on dengue fever. And then we have this article here. It's quite interesting how it's written and even why it's written. But it's from the Ottawa Sun. Uh, 20th of August, it says here, A judge refused to find mandatory minimum sentences cruel and unusual in the case of a 24-year-old first-time offender who claims, listen to this, he was brainwashed into a string of daring robberies, sentencing him to eight years in the penitentiary Friday. So he was brainwashed to do them, he says. Parliament has spoken in, in enacting mandatory minimum sentences for gun crimes, Judge Jack Nadell concluded in sentencing Matthew Rochlow. A judge's discretion does not extend so far as to overrule the statement of legislative intent. So he's sentenced on two dozen charges, including counts of robbery with a firearm and forcible confinement with a firearm, carrying mandatory minimum sentences totaling eight years. And Nadell refused to combine some of the charges or define the minimum, grossly disproportionate. But listen to this, though. I'm going to find this part here. It says, his lawyer, who sought just a year, a year in jail... <laughs> argued the quiet, shy man, you know, who dropped all these places, had been subject to mind control by an older man he met at Algonquin College. I wonder if it was a professor. He argued the man persuaded him to commit crimes to fund a fight against, guess what it was? The New World Order. Ho, ho, ho. Really, eh? And its plans to kill 80% of the world's population to dominate the survivors. The Crown had sought up to 12 years, and Adele did suspend sentence on other charges, including the break and enter for which he was nabbed by police. One of the guns he had, by the way, was a pellet gun, pellet pistol, and um, a BB gun. And uh, so there you go, that's his excuse for that. That's a simpleton making up an excuse. He probably listens to various radio stations just, uh, I thought he'd throw that in and, and get off with it. Oh, it wasn't me, they brainwashed me to do it. Some guy at the university did that. I wonder if MK Ultra is still going on at that university. Probably is. Why not, eh? Why not? But you really live, as I say, in a, in a world which is, it, it truly is different from the one you're conditioned into accepting. I was just thinking over the weekend in between ready to smash the computer, try to fix it and all that. And I was thinking that, um, 
everyone has adapted into the roles. They've all taken on roles that they've seen from television and uh, music television especially. And they copy, they, they become the roles. It's like The Simpsons when it first came out. Um, Simpsons is a play on the simians, monkeys. You're, you're a monkey, you see. You're an animal. And um, it was the most gross thing I could imagine. I only saw about five minutes of it once, and it was enough for me. And I couldn't understand why adults would even watch it. But it was gross and foul and all the rest of it. And the next thing you know is uh, people are starting to use terms that they heard in The Simpsons in their everyday language. And that's how easy it is. Monkey see, monkey do. You see, simian. And that's how you bring it into society. See, with music, television, everyone wants to be uh, a rapper or they want to be, they definitely want to, don't want to age, especially the women. They want to look like 18 years old forever and ever, like uh, the Peter Pan syndrome. And you'll see all kinds in the cities now dress, try to dress like the dancers on stage. It's so much so that literally you can't tell the prostitutes from the ones that aren't, you know. And today in society, where you, where, you, where you don't really have to pay for anything, I don't know why they'd even need prostitutes today, you know, to be honest with you. Because we live in a completely altered, dysfunctional, on-purpose society, which is ready for a brave new world, where you have a partner every night, and your, your government will be recording to make sure you're having a different partner every night, and they'll come down on you if you happen to have the same partner for too many nights in a row. That's in brave new world. You go back to Plato, and Plato said that the, under the guardian class, uh, all women would be held in common. In other words, um, they'd be shared amongst everyone. Well, of course, the feminists would come down and say, oh, that's terrible, that's awful. That. Well, no. You see, they give you the choice of doing it, make you think you're free. So you think it's your choice. I'll sleep with him tonight and so-and-so tomorrow night. You see how they bring... They're not stupid at the top. They are not stupid people at the top. Never, ever think they're stupid people. I'm not talking about the politicians that, that, that are the front men. The ones who run them, there are not stupid people running this at the top. And they have the best brains they can possibly employ or purchase or buy working in the top think tanks to bring all of this in every little facet of it. And they also go through all the different things that could possibly go wrong with it, or reactions from the public and ways to get around that too. And Plato also said that, you know, that uh, drama was a powerful tool because the people emulate what they see on stage. And even music, he wanted to have license. He says it had a tremendous power to influence the youth. And it certainly does, because they've used it to the maximum in my lifetime alone. And I've seen the changes. I know the uh, the techniques that are used in, in music and why the beat is the way the beat is and why they brought in strobes. And I've also gone through the, the group that brought it out, the bunch that brought it out were all ex-military guys, brought out rock music, pop music, and strobe lighting and how they had meetings because they were given hangers by the Air Force to practice these strobes in and try the music and all the rest of it, and given millions of LSD to distribute on their trips around the country. And you think you're living through it. Each generation thinks this is my generation, and uh, you're making all the decisions to be cool. And you didn't decide anything for yourself at all. It was all handed to you in a plate. We have the present time. Rip the present time.
Plato also said, he said, it's the music industry and the fashion industry are very important. Fashion industry, he said that 2,300 years ago. Your whole culture is given to you. And it's upgraded and changed enough into the next part, the next part, the next part, when those who own the world want it that way. Now, there's an article here from Old Think Thinker News, a good article on the Map Makers of Society, the beginnings of a scientific dictatorship. And I've gone on about that for the last few years, so they've got an article here on the 4th of August, 2010. It says, in order to understand the history of the development of a society and political structure, the influence of the large foundations in America is an essential area of research. Their investment into the social sciences and medical establishment shaped their direction for the 20th century and beyond. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix, reading an article about how the big philanthropists, you see the big foundations, were running the country in the 1800s through the 1900s and 20th century and into the 21st century to shape the whole direction of society and the world. And this uh, particular article quotes a lot of Dr. K's documentation. She uh, worked, I think, at MIT, and she got an obituary from there. And he described her as one of the outstanding historians of biology of her generation. Uh, It says, as Dr. K documents, large foundations effectively drew the maps for society to follow. The intelligentsia, trained and schooled under the strong influence of the foundations, closely followed the, followed the vision of the elite. This vision extended into the realms of education. They gave you, made sure you'd write indoctrination, politics, religion, and the financial world. As Dr. Lily Kay has painstakingly documented, this influential group set out in the United States to engage in a massive research campaign to discover the inner workings of man and turn to devise methods of social biological control. The United States, in turn, became the 20th century progenitor of eugenics. Dr. K. paints a clear picture of the massive influence that the wealthy elite in the U.S. state wields, even to the development of culture. There you go. Development of culture and the production of knowledge in the U.S. K. writes, Thus, by the end of the progressive era, even before the large-scale commitment to the advancement of knowledge spurred by World War I, the human sciences received considerable support from the large foundations. Their numerous projects and the unprecedented scope of the financial and institutional resources shaped the development of culture and the production of knowledge in the U.S. Through education, public opinion, stimulation of specific research agenda, and the promotion of selective categories of knowledge and research, the Foundation played a key role in the creation of hegemonic block. Uh, The resources, uh, it says here, the resources... Uh, and prestige flowing into these fields relevant to the problems of social control were instrumental in the formation of consensus between social and political elites on the one hand and academic interests on the other. You see, that's what I said a long time ago. Uh, The academia was brought on board and the foundations have other foundations which they go around just, all these teams go around just making consensus with all the big powerful groups in the world and at the United Nations. So they're all, they're all ensure to go along with the same agendas. Large foundations, primarily Rockefeller and Carnegie, were investigated in 1915 by the U.S. Congress, 
which reported nearly identical findings to the later 1953 Rees Committee dedicated to the same cause. The 1915 U.S. Commission on Industrial Relations reported that the domination by the men in whose hands the final control of a large part of U.S. industry rests is not limited to their employees, but is being rapidly extended to control the education and social survival of the nation. This control is being extended largely through the creation of enormously privately managed funds for indefinite purposes, hereafter designated foundations by the endowment of colleges and universities, by the creation of funds for the pensioning of teachers, by contributions to private charities, as well as through controlling or influencing the public press. They owned the press. She also con- uh, documented many of the original members of the large foundations and their offshoots were driven by the philosophy that they were the chosen elite. In their minds, moral authority was on their side. They sought to guide the direction of the nation and mould mankind's development. Hasn't changed. Hasn't changed. From Hamish, myself, and Ontario, Canada, folks, it's good night to me. Your God or your God school with you. <laughs>